Hello and welcome to Season 2, Episode 31 of Logicast, the AWS News Podcast brought to you by Logicata. I'm Carl Robinson, CEO and co-founder of Logicata, and I'm joined by my colleague, John Goodall. <laughs> How are you doing today, John? Pregnant <clears throat> pause there while I tried to think of something else to say and nothing came out, so we just got dead air. <laughs> well, podcasts aren't the same as radio. I think dead air is allowed. Like in radio, dead air is the enemy, but I think we're, we'll get away with it. Yeah, as uh, regular <laughs> listeners uh, may have noticed, we don't edit our podcasts. It, uh, it's raw. It's, uh, it's as raw as it comes. So, uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, after that uh, huge shakeup to my introduction, um, if you're a regular user to the uh, user, if you're a regular listener to the podcast, um, you'll know that uh, once a week I collate a list of AWS news, which I send out via an email newsletter uh, called the Weekly AWS News Roundup. And then John and I select a subset of the articles from the News Roundup that we'd like to talk to you about in the podcast. So we've got a number of articles to discuss this week. And the first one um, is a very rare announcement from AWS. They are canning a service. Um, doesn't happen very often, uh, but it does happen. Um, so there was a, uh, a low-code um, platform called Honeycode, um, which was launched into beta about three years ago, I think, 2020, um, if my memory, yeah, June 2020, was launched into beta. Um, and last week, on the 30th of August, um, it was announced that they are scrapping it. Um, so uh, no uh, new applications, no new customers can apply to join the beta. Um, and the platform is going to be kept running uh, until February the 29th. 2024. So um, I think I remember talking about uh, Honeycode. I don't know if we talked about it in a previous podcast, but it certainly made it onto the news roundup because uh, obviously low code is a bit of a bit of a thing at the moment. Lots of kind of low code stuff going on. Um, but uh, yeah, what, what are your thoughts on this one, John? Had you had you used it at all? Had you looked at it? Or? No, I, I write code for a living. Yeah. It's I'm, I'm not the target user. I think you're more the target user than I am, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, yeah, I don't know. Low-code platforms are absolutely a thing. I don't think they're going anywhere in the same way that, like, Power BI and all of these business intelligence-type tools are kind of filling the same sort of user profile, if you like. It's non-technical people or people that are sort of semi-technical that they might be data analysts. They kind of, they know their job. Getting things to talk to other things so they can do their job, that's a... That's a thing that's going to stay around for a while. I did always think it was a bit odd that AWS was offering a low-code platform because primarily they've been historically marketed to developers. And maybe that's why they're canning it, because it's really not had any real uptick because they're not historically marketed in the right circles, if you like. If you talk to someone about AWS, people who are going to understand what you mean are engineers. Engineers don't tend to use low-code platforms unless they are specifically a low-code engineer, in which case, what does a low-code engineer actually do? They write quite a lot of code to get it to do the things that it's not doing out of the box. So, yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I think they're not going anywhere, but I always thought it was odd that AWS was hosting one, if you like. Yeah. Yeah, the article goes on to talk about the fact that uh, it was lacking integration with lots of AWS services. So I guess it was pretty limited uh, in what you could actually do with it. Um, but uh, it does does actually quote uh, someone um, that uh, had built their entire uh, 
uh, app or site on Honeycode. So uh, I suspect there's going to be a number of those who, users who um, who uh, are going to be left with a little bit of a challenge having to port what they've built into a, another platform or write code um, to uh, to replicate it. Um, having said that, it was a beta service. So if you're going to build your production platform on a beta service, there's always a risk uh, that you're, you're running, I guess. Yeah, I think it's par for the course. Any beta and, and not prod-ready service ever, not just AWS, has always said, be aware this is not considered production-grade, it's not prod-ready, don't use it for prod workloads, critical workloads, all that kind of thing. So if you've gone out and built your app, website, whatever, on this, then honestly, I think that's on you. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's on you. Granted, it was in beta for three years, but yeah, it's a... I think it's on you. So there are some other AWS low-code and no-code services. Some of them are mentioned here. SageMaker Canvas, which I guess is really more directed at uh, machine learning-specific type applications. Yeah. Uh, Amplify Studio, we've had some experience with that uh, here with some of our, our customers. Uh, and App Fabric. I think App Fabric's kind of targeted more at the container space. I guess Amplify it's Studio. A service mesh. Yeah, Amplify Studio would be the closest thing to... Um, yeah, because I mean, Amplify is a service in and of its own right. It's sort of a competitor for Google's Firebase service, in which it bundles up a number of services kind of in one offering. So it bundles up, I think, API Gateway and Cognito and probably Beanstalk behind the covers and a few other bits and pieces. S3, probably for good measure, that kind of thing. Um, and therefore, Amplify Studio being like the low-code editor that you can use to interact with Amplify. You could just push your own custom apps to Amplify if you wanted to, or you could use Studio. So yes, in theory, you could probably port from Honeycode to Amplify Studio, but realistically, you're probably looking at a rebuild. Yeah. Um, but I guess the, the whole low-code, no-code thing is uh, is not dead. Just this particular product from Amazon is being discontinued. Um, I think the article does mention some other uh, platforms, uh, Microsoft's Power Apps, um, and uh, they've lo recently launched their Copilot AI, um, claiming to build entire applications via conversational prompts. So, uh, Chat GPT style, write me an app. Um, what do you think about that sort of thing? Um, I don't know. Skeptical. I don't think they're good enough yet. I think they'll get there. I do. But then it will be the same as how come you can find things on Google much faster than I find things on Google? Other search engines are available. It's because my prompts are better. Yeah. It's just going to be another skill that the development community is going to have to get good at. It's how do you find things on, on the internet quickly? You have to know how to use the search engines. How do you get your LLM, your generative AI, to spit out the results that you need it to? You have to get good at prompting it. Hmm. So it's just more of the same, I think. So what do you think the future is for low-code, no-code? Who is going to use it? Aren't you? I'm not going to use it because I don't have a brilliant app idea at the moment. But uh, perhaps if I do have a brilliant app idea, I'll go away and uh, try and build it in a low-code, no-code platform. I'll just ask ChatGPT to, to to build it for me. Uh, other conversational uh, generative AIs are available. Um, but, of course, that's the, uh, the one that everyone's talking about at the moment. So. <laughs> no, it, it feels to me like the low-code, no-code is absolutely the tool of choice for not citizen developers, as they've referred to, but your non-technical founders that have got a brilliant idea and they just need to see what it looks like so they can go off and get investment and then hire actual engineers to go and build it. Yeah, so that's, I was going to say something along those lines, actually. It's, it's MVP type stuff. Just build an MVP, yeah. 
show people what it looks like, even use it to show to the developers, you know, rather than just doing a, a kind of a, 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 you know, fag packet sketch or a Figma mock-up or however you might normally show concepts to developers. If you can actually get a working version of the app up and running to, you know, to, to really demonstrate your concept, then I can definitely see a use case for it there. But, you know, will it ever take over developers coding into production? I think we're some way off that. Yeah, no, un unlikely. WordPress has come pretty close, but again, you still can't get away from occasionally having to hack it into shape. Occasionally? <laughs> I'm being Regular generous. regularly having to hack it into shape. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, let's move. Let's basic, move. Uh, let's move swiftly on because we're not here to uh, to Bash knock WordPress. WordPress. It's a, yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a great yeah. platform. Um, so um, let's move on to the next article then. Uh, this one, uh, if you're careless, uh, you may have lost an EC2 key pair um, on occasion. Um, I know I've got some key pairs somewhere, but I can't remember where I put them. So I guess you consider them as lost. Perhaps if I looked hard enough, I might find them. Um, but uh, only in my uh, study accounts, I have to say. It's not uh, not something. Yeah, that's a, that's a more worrisome <laughs> thing if it's production so, workloads. You've lost access to no, not production workloads. My uh, my training uh, lab accounts. Um, uh, perhaps I've not uh, adhered to best practice with those, um, but uh, they <laughs> serve their purpose. Uh, but we've got an article here um, on Medium, uh, with a, which is a step by step guide that tells you how to regain access to an EC2 instance if you have lost your EC2 key pair. Um, so, uh, do you want to talk a little bit about? Do you want to summarize the article, John? Yeah, so there's kind of three options. Is if you already have a username and password combo, which for something like a Windows server you will do because, yes, it has a key pair, but then you use the key pair to decrypt the password. So you'll have the password. Hopefully you've saved that somewhere rather than going and getting it every time because that's just a horrible workflow. In which case, losing the key is irrelevant because you can just go in anyway. And yes, the key could decrypt the original password, but just change the password and then it's no good to anybody if they did happen to find it somewhere. So that's that's option one. Um, obviously, for Linux servers, it's a bit more of a problem because password authentication is not recommended on a Linux environment. They recommend SSH keys. But Windows, it's less of a problem. Number two, using things like Sessions Manager or um, Fleet Manager or, or what have you to get in through Systems Manager, through SSM. That's a good option, but you do need to have pre-configured that. You can't just kind of do it from the outside. Once you realize you've cocked up, you do need to have made by fleet manager or what have you so that you can get in. Um, but that's good. It's a good option. And it, it means, again, you could issue a new key or, or whatever. Um, you could add a new key rather than into the known host so that you could then just use another key. So that's good too. We really like that. But that one does require a bit of prep. And then option three, which doesn't always work, I might add, um, is take an AMI, 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 AMI is correct of the instance by either shutting the whole server down, making an AMI, or making an AMI of a snapshot of the boot volume. Both work. And then you just get AWS to inject a new key at boot time because you say, give it this key, please. It will inject that key into the uh, authorized keys file, and it will let you in. That doesn't work 100% of the time. I've had issues with that before, mostly on older versions of operating systems, on new stuff uh, like Ubuntu 20 and, and onward. I've never had a problem. You know, Amazon Linux never had a problem, particularly 2 and 2023. But on older things, Ubuntu sort of 16 and 14 and what have you, that can be kind of flaky, especially if you've got some custom SSH rules and things in place. So 
yeah, don't rely on that being available. And in some cases, it, you just cannot recover it. You can't get back in and you're stuffed. It's not unheard of. So you're saying AMI is correct. Therefore, by process of elimination, AMI is incorrect. Uh, starting to flame war now. Because <laughs> <laughs> I say AMI, but you know, I'm, I'm happy to be corrected uh, and told that that's wrong. Uh, but uh, yeah. I don't think either are wrong. It's it, it's that SQL SQL thing. You could call it Squirrel if you wanted to, like whatever. Mm. Well, AMI is French for friend, so uh, you know it's a quite an endearing term for your uh, Amazon machine images. So uh, yeah. <laughs> one would hope that uh, they're going to play ball and be friendly with you. So uh, yeah, let's call them Emmys. Um, cool. Okay, uh, let's move on to our next article then. Now we know what to do if we've lost our uh, EC2 key pairs. Yeah. Um, panic, but don't panic. Yeah. You know, read this article, it's, which it's, is in our newsletter, yeah. which you can sign up for. <laughs> the link is in the notes. Uh, <laughs> so. Um, yeah. Uh, so the next the next article uh, is an article on GeekWire um, about a recent uh, acquisition made by Amazon of Fig. Um, now I'm not a developer, so I don't know much about Fig, um, but uh, I think I've heard of it. But I may be confusing it with something else. Uh, but uh, John, you are a developer slash engineer, so uh, tell us a bit about don't Fig. Don't call me a developer. <laughs> don't call me a developer. DevOps guy. Um, I, I don't know. Yeah. I am an active user of Fig and have been for a year, 18 months, yep. something like that. Found it a while ago. Good. It is brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Every time someone comes up with a, oh, we've got a custom terminal that integrates with this tool or integrates with that tool, I don't care I use Fig. It works with iTerm and it does the thing that your custom terminal does. So just so that folk that haven't come across Fig before know what it is, the article says it calling articles generous, but the article says it has several products, including autocomplete, dot files, and all the rest of it. I primarily use it for autocomplete because that's just brilliant. What it's doing is it's adding inline autocompletion for a whole heap of different things. It works with most of your system tools. So, you know, you're making directories and CDing around and all the rest of it. That's great. So you can just kind of bring up a little uh, window and it'll just go through the various folder structures and you can say, yes, this folder, that folder, that folder, that folder. So you don't have to kind of know where things are. It gives you like a little nice preview, which is really cool. Um, but primarily what I end up using it for is autocomplete for the AWS CLI, which is probably why AWS have picked it up because the autocomplete for the AWS CLI is, it's not a hundred percent, but it is really good. It's really, really good. Like I can't emphasize that enough. I could say really for the next fifteen minutes, and it wouldn't be good enough. You said like, it. You said it a few times already. So good. I think we get the message. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest issue you ever have working with command line tools and AWS CLI is is one of the biggest ones going that I've ever used. Is knowing the command to do the thing that you want, and then having to type the whole bloody thing out, right? Because Something like listing S3 buckets, reasonably easy. Something like kicking off an SSM um, run command, send command, command. You could be writing hundreds of characters to do something on a couple of servers that you just don't want to have to log into. So anything that does autocomplete makes your life, not as a developer, but as a sysadmin, quite a lot easier. And the other thing it's doing is because it's got autocomplete, you can start typing list dash, and then it will filter its list of um, commands down to all the list commands for that kind of section and so on and so on and so on. It 
doesn't have a full integrated man page, but it's not bad. And it does have um, some prompts where it will say, you need to include this and you need to include that um, fields and variables and all the rest of it so that you don't uh, hit enter and then it cacks out on you. You know, it's kind of doing that in line. So not a developer tool per se. It's much more of a sysadmin tool, but it is brilliant. The dot file sharing, so dot files is another thing. For those, again, that are unfamiliar, a dot file is something like dot env, where it, it's called a dot file because anything that's preceded with a dot character in a Linux file system or a Unix file system, I should say, is a hidden file. So it doesn't ordinarily show up. You have to kind of write the right command to tell it to show up. It, it's a, considered a hidden file. And you tend to put environment config in them. So your AWS configuration is in dot files. It's in dot AWS slash various files. So that's a hidden folder. Uh, your SSH config, like we were talking about earlier, that's a dot file. So it's kind of hidden away. Dot env is very, um, it's a very common pattern for applications so that you can load in dot env, dot env and get all your environment variables. So being able to manage and then share those dot files with other people in your team is incredibly powerful in like a shared development environment. So there's kind of two arms to this. The autocomplete is a sysadmin focused tool, and then dot files is a dev team focused tool, if you like. I've never used that one because I think that was a paid feature or sharing between teams was a paid feature or it was like not free and I didn't have any use for it. But the autocomplete I can wax lyrical about is brilliant. And the autocomplete um, is free. Yes, and the autocomplete is free. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know how much AWS paid for it. The article says that back in 2021, they managed to pick up a 2.2 million seed from General Catalyst and various other uh vc types um so i don't know how much aws has paid for this but it's very clear that aws have seen that and it that they're I, i'm struggling to word this one that having an autocomplete for their enormous cli is reducing friction it's reducing a barrier because you don't have to go and do you know, da, 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 command dash dash help and read a god awful man page or go off and look it up on the internet. And you've got the same documentation as you would do in the man page, just not in black and white. It's in, you know, it's in black on white rather than white on black. So a little bit easier to read, but the documentation is still the same. And you only really get to that point when you already know what the command is because you've had to Google it, you know. Whereas with the autocomplete, if you've used the terminal a little bit, if you've used the CLI a little bit, you can sort of go, well, looking for things is usually a list or a describe. So I can start with that. And then I know the thing that I'm looking for. So it'll be described dash certificates. And, and it will sort of start to guide you into the right area for the command that you want. So AWS have, have probably gone, our terminal um, utility is enormous by nature of the platform. And we need to be able to help people struggle less with it so this is probably them going oh uh, someone's already done that let's just buy it so you think it's just going to be assimilated into the aws cli so i guess fig may exist um, no more or i think it might i hadn't thought about that i think it very well might in that the technology will just be built into the aws cli so that you're not having to um install another thing on top which would be really cool but I think that would be a great loss for the community because Fig auto-completes for a whole bunch of other things as well. Mm. It's not just AWS that it's doing. That's the thing I use it most for because that's what I'm primarily doing on the terminal because that's my job. But even just 
moving around the file system and use, doing common commands and things. It's also completing them for me too. And I think it would be a great loss to lose those sorts of features if it did get assimilated into the AWS CLI. Well, what's your space uh, for the future of Fig? I've never used Fig, but I do have a Fig tree right outside my office. And uh, <laughs> last year it seemed that uh, the weather conditions were ideal because we, for the first time ever we got some ripe figs which were edible. Um, this year, summer's been so crap that I don't think that's going to happen. So, uh, yeah, there we go. It's, uh, I don't know. It's summer today, isn't it? Summer today. So uh, we have got some fig ripening weather happening as we speak. So uh, you never know. Maybe... Uh, little bit of a late indian summer we might get some edible figs off the tree again this year <laughs> but i digress because uh, that's not the you thing think you that could sell AWS for several million uh it's not a very big fig tree so there wouldn't be many figs so uh, i don't think i would get as much for my figs as fig got for fig uh, if uh, that makes sense <laughs> yeah. i said fig too many times in that sentence there um so uh, let's let's move swiftly on from uh, figs uh and fig Fig and figs uh, to uh, the next article, which is about using AWS S3 for Laravel storage. Laravel, of course, being a PHP framework, uh, which many of our customers have developed their applications in. So we are supporting uh, a number of customers running um, Laravel on AWS infrastructure. So something that we are fairly familiar with. Uh, but uh, I know in our preamble today, John, I think you've got some fairly strong opinions about this article. So uh, Fire away with your strong opinions about this article. <laughs> strong opinions, but always hold them loosely. Um, so generally, the article is okay. It's okay. It's telling you what you need to do in order to use S3 as a file system for Laravel. Because S3 is not a file system. Let's get them, make the very plain. It's object store. It's not a file system. People have been trying to use it as a file system since year dot. I think. Hence, there's S3FS, uh, which is a file system connector for S3. AWS have come out with their own one, which is built in Rust, which they have to tell you it's built in Rust because it's built in Rust. Like You have to say it's in Rust if it's in Rust. Um, and I'm sure there's some others out there as well. Um, but what it's doing is it's those are a way of saying, look, trick the server into thinking that this object store is actually a file store and use it as a file store. And why so, do you want to do that? Well, yeah, that was my question. Why would you want to do that? Because yeah. why, why wouldn't you just use EFS, for example? Cost. Okay. Primarily. It's S3, cost, S3 right? is cheaper. It, much, 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 even at the standard tier. So S3 is two cents a gig. EFS is 10 cents a gig, right? So it's 20% of the cost. Granted, the latency going to S3, be it through direct API calls or as a file system hack and it's a hack frankly it's a hack you shouldn't do it in my opinion but people do the latency is not going to be as good as efs or certainly not as ebs because they're just not it's going over backbones and it's going to other parts of the data center yada 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 never mind the fact that both of those services will be backed onto s3 anyway but that's by the by they'll 100 percent be backed into s3 um, but the latency isn't as good because it's just not if your application, however, isn't especially latency sensitive, you can save yourself a whole heap of money, even at the standard storage tier in S3, right? EBS is, I don't know what it is offhand, but it's more than S3. EFS is more than EBS by a factor of four, I think. So it's really, really cheap to just use S3 as storage. And then you don't have to worry about, I mean, EFS, you don't have to worry about it too much, but you have different file size limits and... Generally, it's less of a concern to use. It's just never going to run out of space. It's a lot cheaper. I've said cheaper a lot. Great. And then, you know, you can do things like intelligent tiering and bring that cost even further down and so on and so on. 
Brilliant. That's why you might want to do it. This article is saying, hey, you can do that without using this kind of file, hooky file system trick. It's literally just saying, oh, look, here's S3. Go interface with S3 using the APIs. So you don't have quite such a latency penalty because it's doing it properly, if you like. There's not like a translation layer between. The issue I take with this article, and it might be a Laravel problem. I'm not a Laravel dev, but I'm pretty sure it's not a Laravel problem, is it tells you, Odd to create a user, an IM user, with an access key and a secret key to then use on an EC2 machine. No, don't do that. You should not do that. Even the one of the screenshots that is saying, you know, when you try to create an access key in any of the rest of these days, it asks you what the access key is for, presumably to kind of nudge people into not making them if they don't need them, and it says use a role instead. Even their screenshot is saying don't do this, saying use a role, use an IAM, uh, use an instance profile. So why are we recommending in this article that we should do it the wrong way? Now, it might be that Laravel genuinely doesn't have support for not using a access key and a secret key, but I don't believe that. Genuinely, I don't believe that. Like Almost everything in creation has a way of inheriting permissions from its environment. And if you have an instance profile attached to a server, you can inherit those credentials from the environment. I mean, you, could, you can almost certainly get an STS token and just go, oh, look, here's my token. If you really need to pass something to your initializer to say, go off and do... Work out how to do it with STS. Don't don't do this. But other than that, I don't have a problem. Cool. And if you really, really have to do it, then build something in your app that goes and gets the user at the access key and the secret key from Secrets Manager. Don't put them in an M file on your disk. Sound advice. Conscious of time, let's. Uh, you mentioned um, one reason to do this would be to save cost, uh, which is a nice mm -hmm. segue into our final article for this week, um, which is an article on raconteur um, and uh, posing the question: Is FinOps fit for purpose in the fight against cloudflation? Um, so the article uh, sets out the fact that cloud costs are increasing. Although I potentially take issue with that because uh, in the first paragraph it says something about. According to Lifter Insights, AWS put up the average price for on-demand compute capacity by 23% in the year to February, uh, which kind of goes against one of AWS's core principles, really, of, of reducing cost. Um, so I'm not aware of any compute price increases recently. Are you, John? Not in on-demand. Spot mm. prices have definitely gone up, but on-demand hasn't. Mm. So perhaps that's what they're referring to. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to take issue with that, that statement first because I'm not sure it's... Uh, correct um as written but that's not to say that people's cloud costs are not going through the roof anyway because there's lots of other reasons why your cloud costs could be increasing um but uh yeah well, what do you think john is uh, finops fit for purpose what, what what are people doing wrong um i don't think anyone's doing anything wrong in sort of the finops practitioner space in the finops foundation space i think that's absolutely doing what it set out to do it is definitely shoving financial literacy down the throats of any engineers that are willing to listen because that's kind of the, the purpose of the organization right um why do strategies usually fail same reason any other strategy fails lack of overhead uh, lack of management buy-in lack of buy-in from above all the way up to the top whatever 
because you get certain engineering management types that don't care about the cost because it's not coming out of quote their budget this is very much outside of the smb space that we play in now but it's it's internal funny money and it really doesn't matter because you've got millions of it anyway so who cares like okay i don't really buy that but uh, to a point i get it um when you're in the smb space and every penny counts then it's worth spending a little bit of time just trying to deal with your bill when you're in the hyperscale space where your engineers are your biggest cost still, then, yeah, okay, I could see you not necessarily caring about squeezing that money out because your engineer could deliver more benefits somewhere else. Granted, that's true of anything, right? Your engineering cost is almost certainly your highest cost. But if you are the engineer and you are the finance guy and you are the CEO and all the rest of it, I can understand people wanted to shrink their bill a bit because people don't value their own mm. We we have seen some apathy towards cost reduction within within our own SMB customer base. Uh, I can think of an example where um, we uh, showed a, a, a quick way to achieve a ten percent reduction on compute costs, and, and the customer just was not bothered. And that that was you know that was that would have run to a five figure a year saving for that particular client. Um, so uh, you know it does the, 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 there are there's a, there's a graph in here. We love a graph, love a chart, mm. um, and uh, you know the top. Um, the top bar on the chart um, says uh, the, the biggest challenge uh, to FinOps teams is getting engineers to take action on cost optimization. So, you know, FinOps are there to identify uh, cost optimization opportunities, but if they can't be actioned, then, uh, you know, you're paying for an expensive FinOps resource. <laughs> and if you're not implementing the recommendations, then you, 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 you know, you're overpaying in a number of areas. So, um it's a tricky thing to get engineers to care about it's definitely tricky because i mean i care because i like a finops consulting engagement because they're really interesting you you get fingers really into things without actually having any production responsibility so i like them but from an internal perspective beyond if you don't save us some money here you're going to lose your job it's very hard to care because it's not your money Mm, mm. absolutely Okay, well, we've come to the end of our time for episode 31 of season two of Logicast. So uh, it's lucky I was watching the clock because I'm sure we could have uh, talked about this uh, for (laughs) quite a bit longer. Uh, And I'm sure we'll talk about it again in uh, future episodes because obviously cost optimization is a regular topic on the podcast, um, uh, particularly in the current economic climate. Uh, But that's all we have time for for this uh, this week, episode 31, season two of Logicast. Thanks for listening. Uh, You can find us uh, on all major podcast distribution channels and now on YouTube as well. If you'd like to look at our faces uh, and the funny faces that we pull uh, while we're talking on the podcast. So uh, check it out, download it, subscribe, and we'll be back again next week uh, with another episode of Logicast. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again next time.